I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show okay <laughs> let's cheers. start this cheers. cheers yeah cheers yeah, real, yeah, real, cheers. cheers to that okay cheers to the <laughs> world this. to you three to all four of us i'm so glad we're doing this Let's make this podcast that we call so many damn books. So many, so many, so many damn books. Hello and welcome. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Aminatu So and Ann Friedman joining us in the damn Zoom library. <laughs> Is that what I'm calling it? I, I get. I mean, <laughs> if it, you know, if it's not broke. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Hi. So Aminatu is a writer, interviewer, and cultural commentator who facilitates conversation around the most important issues of our time. Anne is a journalist, essayist, and media entrepreneur who loves talking to strangers and finding new ways to explain the world. And they are the authors of Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And also, you are the co-hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, which needs no introduction. I mean, it's an enormous, fantastic cultural cornerstone i feel like of of what makes podcasting podcasting thank you both uh, for i guess, <laughs> I guess. I like, it just, all of, this is just making me feel very old <laughs> like, yeah really what that means is we've been doing it a very long time <laughs> i know it's it i feel like you all podcasts should come with like a before serial and after serial like which which one do you follow we are bs like we are bs we're forever BS. <laughs> all the <Yeah>. way <laughs> We're so glad that you guys could come and joining us in and talk books. Um, but you guys talk books all the time on your show. So this is old Truly hat. a favorite. Truly a favorite topic. I mean, um, as, as before- you all know, there are too many damn books. Is the- <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Very first thing we usually do is talk about the drink. usually get to make this drink for our people and serve it to them and it is uh so sad that i don't get to do that but we did send you the um the recipe beforehand if you could make it at home this is a a drink i'm calling the zing which um early on in big friendship you um you guys mentioned that there's that feeling when you meet somebody meet someone and and it's not it's not a sexual thing it's a just a this person ooh that's a cool person and you feel that zing. So I was trying to capture that in a cocktail. So it's bourbon, uh, fresh lemon juice, and then lavender simple syrup. And I mean, it's basically lavender uh, lemonade with bourbon in it. Um, and the lavender 
brings out, I'm using Four Roses bourbon, and it really brings out those like vanilla and those caramel notes that are in Four Roses along with the, the lavender. It just sort of, I don't know, it plays together so nicely. Um, and so that is the drink. And I think, Anne, you said you, you made it sort of. I you made got- a non-lavender version. Mine is with Basil Hayden, plain simple syrup, and Meyer lemon juice from Ooh. a friend's tree. Um, yeah, the experience of like, oh God, my tree is overproducing. Here, let me just throw a bunch of lemons at you. Um, uh, yeah, I juiced a bunch of them. Have. Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> great California problem to have. That's awesome. And what are you, what are you drinking instead? Uh, Drew, you've got something different. Oh, I'm drinking a uh, Mylar Bags IPA from Other Half around the corner from me here in Park Slope. Because oh my God, you're she's my neighbor. Me- what? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Huh? Was like just walk by there. Funny. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Distracted. Um, and it's uh, my my wife finished all of the bourbon um, as she's about to get on a call with all of her best friends, and I was like, well, this will this is fine. That that makes sense. I had all of the ingredients to make that delightful cocktail that you had sent around, and then I like decided that I wanted to save the lavender for something else and I've never had lavender not with gin so it was strange and really all day I've been craving a tequila soda and so I made myself one I love it so this is just more like like happy hour which I really love (laughs) (laughs) should we talk about what we what we bought what books what books we've purchased in our lives sure Anne, do you want to start or do Drew, do you want to, I don't know who should begin this thing. I'm happy to start. I can tell Go you. For it. I, okay. I came into possession of two books yesterday because I had a distant hang on my back patio with a friend and she brought me a book to borrow and a book to keep, um, which is a, it's an experience that I've had that. a lot in the pandemic, like the friend lending library. Um, and the book to borrow is uh, Hilton Owl's White Girls, which I did not read when it came out or... I should say that I read some of the essays in it, but I did not sit down and read it cover to cover. Um, and so I, this morning, because we had an interview cancel, I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to do is just open this. So I've already started it. Um, and then the book to give me is that she had a bonus copy of Mary Beard's SPQR just sitting around. Um, and I'm also very excited about that. I think it's going to be cool. a good late night read. Like the 10 minutes before bed kind of read. <laughs> uh-huh. the, the like last two months or like, yeah, I love that. Just That's as so long cool. as it takes me to get through it. Yeah. 15 minutes a night. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I can go next. I come into possession of books every day and uh, it's a delightful problem to have, but it's also a frustrating problem to have every <laughs> once in a while because, you know, you really have to triage like, what am I actually going to read? My... My neighbors love that I just leave like hella books on the stoop all the time because I just make yeah. I make a gut level decision of I'm just going to read this or not. But a very delightful book that is not out yet that will be out later in the summer that I read is called um, Luster by Raven Leilani. And it is amazing. It was like truly had no intention of like 
finishing it in like 1.5 sittings and derailed the rest of my day. I was so happy that I did it. It is Raven's debut and I cannot wait to read more from her. Um, the other book that has come back into my possession because someone borrowed my copy and then essentially stole it. And um, <laughs> which like whenever the, I, I feel like I really do want to start having a real library where I like people have to check things out. Um, but someone <laughs> uh, you, you need know, a yeah. stamp system. I know. <laughs> but someone took my copy of Queenie and uh, I've been like really upset about it because I've been wanting to revisit it. And I was watching or like half watching Bridget Jones diary the other day. And uh, and I was very like. I was very irritated by that choice and I was like what is like in that rubric but better than Bridget Jones Queenie is that book so um, so yeah and then someone gifted me a copy recently so I feel like everything is well in the world (laughs) that's perfect yes Christopher do you want to go uh sure yeah I um I actually just pre-ordered um because no one has given me a copy of Luster but I, I, I have it. It's released August 4th. Um, and I'm so excited about that book. And I also got this book, um, Rosewater by Tade Thompson. And uh, it's set in Nigeria in the mid 2060s um, in Aliens Land. And I'm very excited to, it, I guess it's the beginning of a trilogy. All three of the books are out, which I love when I'm starting a trilogy that all of them already exist. Um, and <laughs> like no Harry Potter feelings for you. <laughs> <laughs> the binge right. read I'm, only. Yeah. Well, I, I I mean yeah I I just uh, I'm tired of I'm tired of waiting around for for authors to finish books. Um, I mean finish their series is is, but yeah. So I'm really excited about Rosewater. Um, and and I love Aliens Landing. I think that's always a fun idea for a book. Drew. Uh, I also did a pre-order. I think it is the longest like timeline pre-order that I've maybe ever done. Uh, it's for Rebecca Carroll's memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, which is coming out in, I think, February of next year. Wow. <laughs> so it's long enough away that I'm going to get the email from Community Bookstore and be pleasantly shocked that, oh, I passed me. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> I had a conversation with Rebecca when I was working at the public uh, and we've stayed in touch and I'm obsessed with her new ish podcast come through with Rebecca Carroll. Um, And since I met her two years ago, she's been talking about this book and finally I saw the pre-order link come up and I was like, this is the best thing I could do with my day today. (laughs) But that's like two minutes and then what? Uh, two minutes and then it's wonderful like i said in the future i'll be so pleasantly surprised that i have a book that i forgot i ordered awesome speaking of books uh that are new and hot and fresh and cool yeah big friendship oh yeah great segue really good very much (laughs) (laughs) um Uh. would you two i'll leave it to you to figure out who does it or how you do it, but describe to our listeners who might not know what, what is big friendship? What's the book? Do you want to go or should I do it? (laughs) You know what, Anne, I'll fall on my sword. I'll go. 
Um, <laughs> I feel that you've done this so many times this week, so thank you for being uh, patient and cool. Um, Here's the joke. You've also done this a million times this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just dropped the iPad in the uh, closet. Um, big friendship is um, the memoir of our friendship. We are um, Anne Friedman and Amina Tussauds. We have been friends for a little over 10 years, which we really think is the bare minimum of time that you can know someone before um, you can say that you are in a big friendship with them. Um, and the book is part memoir, part um, pop psychology and interviews with experts and um, research about the place of friendship really in society. And um, it's really about having a robust conversation about how you keep your friends close, the friends that you have already made. And um, we were really excited to write this book and explore friendship on an ideas level because it is a relationship that's been transformative for both of us. But we also know that so many of the ways in which we talk about friendship, frankly, tend to be a little infantilizing. Um, there is just an expectation that you make friends when you are young and then those people just magically stay in your life until the day you die and no one talks about the hard stuff or the work that you have to put in or the fact that as you grow and change and life just becomes more difficult and you have other priorities, um, it really is a challenge to keep your friendships at the center of your life. And if you are people like us for whom um, your friends really are your family and your friends are a huge part of um, you know, the things that make you happy and healthy and a productive member of society, um, it is a topic that begs to be explored like really, really, really seriously. And um, part of writing Big Friendship was really about coming up with a vocabulary and a shared understanding and new labels for things that everybody feels intrinsically and knows, but that um, as a society, we have a really hard time pinpointing because again, we prioritize um, romantic bonds or, you know, like um, biological family bonds in a way that really gives friendship the short shaft. And so Anne and I say that we are two people for whom friendship is not a dessert at the end of a life well lived. It really is the main course. Hmm. That's really nice. Um, and it's something that I was really struck by in, in your book. There aren't a lot of scientific inquiries into friendship. What, why do you think that is? I mean, why, why don't we look at friendship as, the, as, as a field of study? I mean, some of it is a problem of definition, I think, right? Where like friend is a term we use for our closest decade-long intimates and also like someone who we kind of don't know that well, who we maybe just follow on the internet. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so that's part of the problem is that the term really encompasses a lot of different types of relationships, which is exactly why we wanted to use this term big friendship um, that Aminatu so beautifully defined in that summary. Um, so that's part of it. Um, I think also some of it has to do with research flowing where um, society already puts like structural support and um, like financial incentive, right? So if marriage is an institution that like the state's involved in, like your money is bound up in you, there are milestones around it. Um, it's really kind of expected um, of all adults that it's something that you at least try for, you know, I know you can't see me, but I'm air quoting. Um, those are institutions that are deemed more worthy of academic study. And I think, you know, um, 
that is, it's fine. It's great. I love that there is a lot of research about parent and child bonds and spousal relationships and that there are therapists for those things. But what we really discovered is that the research about friendship tends to be about young children. So it studies about who's sitting with who in the school cafeteria, um, or it is studies on college students where they're just looking at this population and asking them, like, who are your close friends right now? And as we all know, like, college, a super interesting time, but maybe not the most telling <laughs> in terms of how do you form and keep adult friendships. So <laughs> there are a few things for sure that um, point to uh, what can we learn about long-term friendship, um, including studies where they went out to look at, like, physical health in a community and then found by accident, like, oh, friendship is actually a big part of long-term health. You know, like mm. there's, there, there's some research that we, that we definitely cite to this effect. And there, and there are researchers, to be sure, who are studying friendship among adults directly. But it was, it was not the kind of robust field of work that we really thought we were just going to like easily tap into and cite as we talked about our own friendship. Hmm. A thing I really love about the book is the way that structurally it also mirrors what a big friendship feels like. I, I've I've never read a book that gave me such a like an electric experience of the way that it toggles between first person plural and third person. And I I just, I loved it. I was reading it. and I was like, oh, this I'm so interested to know what it was like what the writing process was like, mm -hmm. how you came to that decision, how you wrote those joint sections. It just, it, I, I loved it. And I want to know more about it. You know, there was a, a day like very much towards the end of the last draft that we turned in for this book where Anne looked at me and said, wow, we really did that the hard way. And I, <laughs> I'm glad that she said that on like the last day, because if she had said it on the first day, um, we would probably not be writing this book together. <laughs> We would not be having this conversation. No, yeah. absolutely not. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that part of telling the story that we were telling, we understood that we really had to center ourselves and we had to be really hyper specific about our own experience of friendship. We made a decision not to have, you know, like dueling chapters and different perspectives like Anne says or Amina says and feels this way because we were really trying to find a joint truth of our friendship. We've read some incredible fiction about complicated friendships. There's there's so many books to that effect. There there is a lot of like very robust nonfiction about you know one-sided accounts of what it's like to be a friend or to 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 be in in this kind of like platonic relationship. But what we did not find was a joint telling of the same story. And it was really important for us to get to that because so much of untangling the the deepest meaning and truth about what our big friendship is, is that we have to agree on a lot of things, you know, or we have to start to understand um, what the points of agreements are and what the points of disagreements are and be able to talk about that in within the like same perspective. And so... Um, it was definitely the, the hardest the, the hardest thing to do, but I also think that um, it really served it served the larger purpose that we had, which was to to really just like showcase what it is like to be inside of a big friendship together at the same time. And so a lot of our process was I feel like everyone is gonna get so sick and tired of us like talking about this. Um, you know, <laughs> like 
very robust conversations, a lot of outlining together in the same room. Um, Anne and I do not live in the same city, so we had to carve out some like writing retreat style time, which um, I'm not going to lie, was super fun. Um, <laughs> Sounds awesome. You know, uh, it was hard, but it was super fun. Um, and, uh, you know, like we would outline together, we would talk about it, and then we would go away separately to write to the outline that we had. And a thing that I was always so delighted by is that um, so many times our the stories that we used to illustrate like a particular point would be the same or one of us would remember something that the other had forgotten that was like really fun or, um, you know, and sometimes also there were there were things that we wrote about that were really hard. But in doing it this way, it was actually really illuminating because we really got to see um you know, we got to explain both like a thing that was painful for us and finally fully understand it from the other person's perspective. And there was something wow. about that that was so freeing. Where it was like, oh, I was reacting this way and you were reacting that way. And here is the mess that we have made together. But actually, um, you know, we can actually find our way out of that mess because we were having an honest conversation about it. Right. That's amazing. You guys have been doing this, your podcast together for so long. Were any of those skills transferable to the book? We are really good colleagues. Like, I really <laughs> do think, I mean, it's true, like, uh, that we um, have learned a lot through doing the podcast about each other's strengths and about each other's working preferences, even down to, like, what time of the day is your brain most, like, on fire, you know? Um, and... Actually, in terms of the collaboration around the book, the podcast, I think, has most prepared us for all of the stuff that wasn't writing in the sense that we, in dealing with our publisher, in talking about the book publicly, like things like that, there is a lot of trust that we are both going to be checking in with each other about, hey, this is how we want to present a joint united front as, as an answer to this question that's happening either behind the scenes or publicly. And... That In that way, working together on the podcast really prepared us. Um, but, you know, as Aminatu was saying, like, really the book's foundation is conversation. And um, that's something that precedes the podcast <laughs> in terms of um, being a core part of our friendship and just, like, always wanting to know more and more and more about what the other person thinks. Mm. Mm. Something that... I think every everybody who I have talked to about your book, about the fact that we were going to get to talk to you, about the show, there is just this love for the ways in which you both are helping people learn how to navigate, particularly this this idea of friendship. And I loved that you included um, some other examples of big friendship, including so two gentlemen who are near and dear to our hearts, Isaac Fitzgerald and Saeed Jones, both mm -hmm. of whom have been on the show and whose friendship we look up to. What, what is it like for you to both be role models to people in terms of individual and friendship, but, but what is it like to sort of live it so publicly sometimes? Oh man, the word role model is, I feel like, um, <laughs> it's like anytime, you know, like someone tells a pop star, like you're a role model, they're like, no, I'm just Selena Gomez. <laughs> I'm not a role model. Um, yeah, you know, I think th like, this is a really interesting and like complicated 
conversation for me because I think that, you know, there there's so many ways in which like, yes, I am living my friendship with Anne Friedman out loud. Like it is is loud and clear. We we make a show together. We are, you know, like we are publicly known as friends. And, you know, and there's also the like deeper truth of so much of that happened very accidentally. Like it was not a, Mm -hmm. I would feel so much differently about it and probably better prepared if it had been this like beautiful, like calculated, you know, kind (laughs) of thing. I think that, um, you know, like Isaac and Saeed, this experience of um, being people who are publicly known for being friends is something that like more and more a lot of people in our cohort are experiencing just because we are people who make media. Um, And I think that there is, you know, on one hand, there is like some discomfort with that. But I think that the, you know, the deep truth for me that I am trying to get at is that I know that when I am honest about how my life is lived, like the pain points, the the joys of it, the whatevers, I get so much um, insight and just generous self-knowledge from other people that it makes it worth it to do it all of the time. Mm. You know, I think that um, we are so clear in writing this book that we're not experts. Like you, uh, you know, I'm like, read two pages and you will find out how like bad at friendship we are <laughs> and how like so not experts we are. But I think that the, you know, the thing that we try to do on our podcast and the thing that we are trying to do on the show, and I think that one of the larger projects of our friendship is really to share your story in service of, um, of something that is bigger than yourself. You know, so it's not really the point of the book is not to be like, oh, Anna and Amina, public friends. It really is. Oh, here's how two weird people are doing friendship. How are other people doing friendship? And part of interviewing people like Isaac and Saeed and, um, you know, and the other friend pairs that we talked to was really to get to that. Because in the absence of really robust support system, you know, and like a societal kind of support for affirming friendship, everyone is kind of just muddling through it in their own way and cobbling all of this, you know, like vocabulary and rituals and rules and, and, and boundaries and, and all of these things. And, and I just find it so interesting that we are all people, you know, that I would say that we are all, you know, fairly like forward thinking and very open about all of these other areas of our lives. But when it comes to the the places that your friendships can be painful there it's still like very much a taboo area and it is like a no-go it's a no-go area for like many many good reasons and i think also like some like very dumb reasons and so (laughs) i um i just like feel very heartened that you know instead of feeling like uh i'm just like oversharing about my life that um i am just I am opening up a line of communication for other people to also say like how they are doing friendship and how it's working out for them. And it's been part, the most rewarding part of this project for me has been that is just like getting an insight into how other people are living in their friendships and, um, you know, and figuring out like how as a society, it's a bond that we are going to take seriously. Wow. I love that. I feel like you guys were like, um, you put it all on the page, your friendship all on the page. Like there's this like warts and all quality to like, even the first, the, the how the book starts is like at this trouble spot um, of, of, of your friendship. And I was so, um, 
I was relieved, I guess, by that, like, like that it's not just all beautiful and, and just fantastic that like, no, there is a, there is a, there are these pressure points. Can you talk about like being truthful about that side of your friendship? Like, that you do you think your fans are going to be surprised by it? Uh, Honestly, at this point, I don't know what is going to be surprising to people and what is going to feel <laughs> like totally. Oh yeah, of course. Why would you even say that? You know, um, I will say that there was a version of this book that did not start that way, that started more at the chronological beginning. Mm. And it took a lot longer, much like in the real timeline of our friendship, it took a lot longer to get to those points of difficulty. And when we really thought about what we wanted the book to do and you know the conversations we wanted it to enable for other people, it became pretty clear that we needed to set up at the very beginning, not just say, hey, our friendship always hasn't been perfect, but show an example of that. And so that way the reader could be a little bit more knowledgeable than we were, right? Like then when you, when you kind of go back to the beginning and you see us meeting each other and deepening this friendship, you're kind of like, okay, but where's the crack? Oh, I see maybe a little crack. Like, is, is, that, is that where that starts to happen? And one of the amazing things about being able to look backward and then put it all down in a book is that, you know, you get to kind of relive it a little bit of like, oh, wow, if we did this over, we'd be watching at this moment for <laughs> this exact pattern that, that we didn't identify until so much later when we paid lots of dollars to a therapist to help us identify it. Um, <laughs> And so, so I do think that, like, really, um, yeah, that, that structure is designed to be both reassuring, but also kind of enticing of like, we want people to help. We want people to, you know, be interested in the mystery of how a friendship that seems like it's going really well could fall apart, because that was a question that we had when we were living it in real time. You mentioned that the there was a version of the book that started w at the beginning of your friendship. Do you want to? Can you talk a little bit about the book's evolution? Like how long? How long was this writing process? And and I, I know there was like maybe a bit of the book that was going to be about shine. You know, there's shine theory, and that seems like that might have been a book itself too. I, I'm just curious what else was on the table. Um, I would say that like you know, nuts to bolts. This book took over two years to write from the time that we were like, we need to come up with a book proposal. We wrote the book proposal, probably three years, actually. The like <laughs> thought that we were going to write a book, wrote the book proposal, wrote the book, uh, you know, revised the book and then revised it again. I think it's fair to say that in the in the year and change that we actually like sat down to write it, it was three different books. And mm -hmm. um and that, it's, it, that feels like such a relief because there, you know, there is a world in which that first version of the book that Anne was telling you, the very chronological, like, yeah, like, come with us on this, like, high and, high, you know, like, we're only getting higher and higher and the, the rom-com <laughs> vibes are so, are so fun here. And, um, you know, like, in a way where really that story to me doesn't, doesn't really have enough teeth and it doesn't have, um, there are no stakes there. Just, like, telling right. this, like, chronological account of like here's how I went from point A to point B because I think right, that's that, like a hallmark card not reality right right <laughs> yeah <laughs> because I think that if you know like if we are really honest like two people who have a platform and two people who are you know like known for being friends there is this trap that you fall into I think like unwittingly a lot about just being part of the 
you know, the envy economy of Instagram or like, you know, of like mm. other people's lives or, or the podcast. And that is something that, you know, like we have like no personal interest in at all. And I think that being like putting all of your cards on the table immediately was so freeing for us. And I think also like honestly a testament to the fact that, oh yeah, we have been dealing with our shit because something that was really hard to talk about before is not hard to talk about at all. Any of the <laughs> stuff. put it on page two. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's like page two stuff, you know, like don't have to hide it in page 250. Um, but yeah, you know, like there was just something so good about saying like, oh yeah, this used to be a pain point in our friendship. And now it's actually something that we can point to as, um, you know, like a cautionary tale and also something that we can talk about publicly. And so, you know, um, in the various iterations of this book, it was definitely more, um, you know, it was more of that, like this very chronological like thing. I went back and reread our book proposal, Anne, recently, and it was the book proposal Why? Oh is my God. hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious. <laughs> um, it is truly hilarious because, you know, it was going to be this like, very upbeat like these girls they they're like they they're friendship experts and they uh they have a podcast so they're also podcast experts and uh you know just like truly the, the things that you have to write when you're writing a book proposal because publish publishing is a scam let's just be true here so that is not our fault that is the fault of publishing but it was interesting it was just interesting to go back and see like you know the stuff that we thought would be really important and not and you know even before this book was written we had gotten approached a couple times about writing a book that was either about shine theory or writing a book about the podcast specifically. And each time the answer was like a resounding, no, I don't want to read that book. That book is boring. You know, like you're going to write 12 chapters about doing a podcast. That's demented. Um, <laughs> so, and, and I think that, you know, it was also just like this part of, we've been collaborators for such a long time. You know, it's like we make this podcast, we've had these like lower level, like kind of writing projects. And here, what the thing that was like so apparent to us is that what we really wanted to explore was friendship itself. It was not mm -hmm. this like, you know, super navel gazy, like talk about yourself or talk about this. But the quickest way into that story for us was to, to share of ourselves. Thinking about sharing and empathy, uh, not to transition away too quickly, but also it feels like such a good way. That's all that Parable of the Sower by Octavia <laughs> Butler makes me think about the book that you two asked us to read for the book club section of this. Um, to start off, would love to know why this book, what it means to the both of you. Uh, well, man, where, where do how you much time start? do we have? Yeah, I know. I'm just like, <laughs> do you guys have another hour? <laughs> Octavia Ballard. I oh. Oh. So I reread uh, both Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents um, last year, I think. God, what is time? I think it was last year, <laughs> fairly recently. Um, and in part because I think I had read some passing comment about a detail that I had forgotten about the book, which is that um, there is a really horrible autocratic leader um, of this very unequal future America whose like campaign slogan is make America great again. <laughs> and I just, you know, she, Octavia Butler is such a prescient writer for many, many reasons, but the specificity of that, I was like, I got to go back to the whole thing because, <laughs> because wow. Um, 
And so anyway, so that that is kind of at the core of why I picked it up again. But I think there is also something about the way she crafts characters in crisis or like mm. this feeling of um, you don't know when this is ending. This is like, you know, extremely, extremely intense pressure that all of these characters are under. And and who are they in that moment? And, you know, and I, I know that we are not living through the kind of apocalypse that she details in, <laughs> in Parable of the Sower, but um, a lot of the questions she really explores about, like, what will you do to survive and, and what sort of things really are important and core to you and where will you draw the line when no one's watching? Um, those are the kinds of questions that really speak to me about this book in this moment. Mm. Mm. I mean, the book is literally set in 2025, you know? <laughs> so, so wild. It's, it's right now. And terrifying. <laughs> it's right now. It You know, like income inequality, the planet's on fire, the, you know, everyone in L.A. is living behind a gated community. That stuff is like already happening. Um, I remember that I, you know, I didn't read a lot of sci-fi growing up and... It was always something that I had a really complicated relationship with. Like in French school, they made us read so much just like white man sci-fi. And I, I'm i not Oof. a like, I don't care about aliens. I don't really, like any kind of fantasy element is not for me. I just really uh, recoil immediately. I was like, I need, I need things that are happening right now. But I think that so much of that too, for me, really had to do with race. It's like who uh, who gets the benefit of uh, of the time machine and who gets the benefit of, you know, the imagination yeah. of space and all of those things. And I didn't discover Octavia Butler until I was in college. And I remember just immediately being, you know, I was like a black lady uh, writing sci-fi. I'm in, I am all in. <laughs> and, you know, and, and reading more about her life, someone who found success like later in life, someone who's, you know, like books were not really uh, as acclaimed as they, as they um, you know, like weren't acclaimed like while she was alive as they are now. And someone who, um, there's like a fantastic letter of note from, you know, of her where she writes to herself mm. about just like being like all of the things that she's going to accomplish and how just the, like the, the inner confidence that she just had and how she charted her own, her own path and just really understood the space that she was taking. I think that just, you know, just on the, like the level of being a human, Octavia Butler is someone who's just been really fascinating to me. Um, and so I read the books, I enjoyed them then, and it was great. And then I had, um, similar to Anne, I think Anne, actually you were the one that told me about Make America Great Again. And I was like, oh. I was obsessed when I was rereading these books. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fully obsessed. I remember you told me that. And then also I was watching um, that TV show, The OA, that I never, like, I like watched one episode. And the one episode I watched, I think there was like a bookseller recommended um, the book and I was like oh that's weird and then in that same week I watched an episode of High Maintenance where that book was also part of the <laughs> like Whoa. the plot line I was like great um, pick up pick up the book and read it again and it was so you know like it's such an incredible experience when a book that you like like so much can speak to you again over and over again and it just it feels new and it feels fresh and it feels terrifying in a way that it never did before and it feels real in a way that I, you know, like I hadn't quite understood when I was in my 20s. And also we are, you know, we're literally going to be 2025 very soon. Like we are catching up to the timeline of that book. 
And so much of what she writes about is already here. And there is just something about that to me that was, it was just like really like mind blowing, but also weirdly very comforting, you know, that, oh, in the imagination of someone who is very rigorous and is, um, you know, like really focused on, on justice and truth, like they had, she had seen this already. And so Mm -hmm. there was just something about that, that just, it just struck me as so important. And I, you know, and I really want this to be a book that I read, um, you know, like every couple of years in my life, because that is just how much it means to me now. I don't know which editions everybody has, but the I think it's the most recent one has a foreword from N.K. Jemisin, and she talks about exactly that, oh, about rereading wow. it basically every 10 years mm-hmm. and the way it hit her in her 20s and in her 30s and in her 40s. And she's like, I can't wait to reread this in my 50s and in my 60s. Mm-hmm. Like, how rare is it to get a book that not only do you get pleasure out of rereading it, but to truly find it that it speaks to you differently as you age mm-hmm. so amazing yeah. it's crazy i mean it came out in 1993 93 mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and it just i mean and i guess um she was looking at hw bush and then clinton america it doesn't i mean like i just feel like it doesn't seem like you would necessarily be thinking apocalyptically in that same way but it, it, it as like I feel like it could be written now like I see how like you could see what's going on now and think like this is what's going to happen in the future it just uh, it's just like yes yeah, prescient prescient is the word I kept thinking while I was reading it and I was also amazed that there's the shape of the the, the plot of the novel of it, you don't find out where they're going to go mm. more than halfway through the book like that would usually be I don't know the the conflict would be like, oh, we're trying to get to this place, but we don't, that's not what you're following. You're following this, this character who has this um, em, em, empathetic connection to anybody that she sees. Um, and, and it's so much, it's smaller than that. And then it gets big. I don't know. I, I, w- I was fascinated by that, um, by that construction that you can care about the character more than you need to care about the, uh, some sort of outside conflict. Right. I have a terrible confession to make and that that is, this is my first time reading this book and I've read a bunch of other Octavia Butler. I love uh, kindred. I read in college and that I was just like, Holy shit, this is amazing. And for whatever reason I kept people be, I think that there was a period in my life where when people gave me, when too many people gave me an emphatic recommendation, I was like, I don't know there's no way it to the thing. And so my first encounter with the story actually was I saw a production of uh, Toshi Reagan and Bernice Johnson mm. Reagan's opera. Oh, and right. I, I remember wow. seeing it and everybody around me was able to follow the plot seamlessly because it was such a, it's, that show is so beautiful and it's such a tone piece that if you are unfamiliar with the plot, there is a little bit of, in a way that Christopher, sort of what you're talking about that the the plot of the novel quote unquote doesn't kick in until about halfway mm-hmm. we're seeing these things cropping up but it's really it's Lauren how she is living what it's like to live in this community 
and then suddenly shit pops off and it's like, oh, okay, now we're on, now we're moving down like a more traditional Aristotelian plot structure. And so much of Toshi's opera lives in that earlier space. Mm -hmm. And it was so cool to start reading the book and seeing the ways that it all tied together. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, in a weird way, it made me appreciate the book even more, I think, than I would have anyway. I, I can't think of another time that I've seen an adaptation and then come to the source material and mm. felt that the adaptation helped me understand the source material better. Have you guys heard the music to the opera? I mm -hmm. went and looked. It's, it's, I it's, haven't. Yeah. It's pretty epic. In researching the, the the book, I've I found out that she didn't get to finish the trilogy, and then the, mm -hmm. this because it was going to be three books. But Drew, you were also saying that it was going to be six, six books, books. Actually, that there I saw. Was I was reading an article just after finishing the book because uh, I was curious about sort of what I knew that she hadn't finished Parable of the Trickster when she died, and uh, her books are at the Huntington her papers are at the Huntington Library and some scholar guy got to sort of be the first one to like open the boxes and look through them and he wrote this piece I'm pretty sure it was for the Los Angeles Review of Books I'll find the link and I will link to it on our website but he's talking about finding her false starts of trickster and the ways in which as as a writer, I found it tremendously reassuring that she was willing to write 50 pages walking down one particular plot line and then be like, ah, it's not working. And she would try something completely different. And she did it so many times. But then deep towards the end of this, he found, I guess, her outline that the first trilogy was rooted in the Bible. The second trilogy was going to be rooted in Earthseed and that it was going to follow hundreds of years of advancement towards essentially at the end of the sixth book humanity would finally attain sort of the the grace of Earthsea that Lauren is talking about in the first pages of the book and I just I had this overwhelming understanding comprehension of of the loss mm. of so many stories um I was talking to a friend about this book and we were both like everybody loved Cormac McCarthy's The Road so much and that's just like a nihilistic mean nasty version of the second half of this novel and like what a different world it would be like if Octavia Butler was still alive and we gave her the Nobel Prize <laughs> you know like yeah oh what, how do you guys feel about the um, the spiritualism of Earthseed of 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 her, like God is change in this book? Do, does that resonate with with you as readers? I send that quote the the more extended version of it that ends with God is change mm -hmm. to friends of mine who are struggling, and it's something I return to. Just like there's something reassuring and mantra like about like change being the only constant. The quote is. Um, all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. Mm -hmm. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. I will say that like that feels very resonant for me. Um, and actually, like a lot of my feelings about 
religion and um, the kind of value it has or the place for it. I feel like Parable of the Talents really gets into a lot more of that Mm -hmm. stuff for me. Um, And it's interesting because I really I do love Parable of the Sower, but um, I, I also feel that sense of loss about like these novels that were never written because Talents is where she really deals with like, you know, in a way that like Cormac McCarthy could never about like when the kind of crisis that is immediate and survival is immediate when that when that ends, like, what are you left with? And intergenerationally, what does that look like? And the mother-daughter dynamic in talents and the way that, you know, one generation, um, you know, doesn't really understand another generation's struggles um, and the failure to really connect across those lines and different perspectives on religion, those are all things that really, really deeply affected me about talents and so it's almost it's almost hard to react to that question and just talk about um parable of the sower because i'm like yeah i love i love that little part about change but i don't really feel deep feelings about yeah. earth seed and religion for that book in particular mm. So obviously we all recommend getting into the world of Parable of the Sower and and Octavia Butler. Um, What else, what other books do we recommend? We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Amanatu, let's start with you. Oh my God. Man, what other books do I not recommend? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I have been like going back, like ever since Toni Morrison died, I've been like revisiting the Toni Morrison uh, canon and like bar none, the best writer America has ever had. I was like, I don't do superlatives <laughs> about anything usually. But just like sentence for sentence, punctuation for punctuation, no <laughs> one comes close. And yeah. um, it's been, you know, and, and I just like, for me at least, I was like, oh yeah, I read a lot of these when I was really young. And obviously they had this like huge impact on me. But again, like with the Octavia Butler stuff, it, I don't know, the, the feelings are, are deeper and more lasting now. You know, like talk about um, another writer that I need to carve out time for, you know, I'm like every year, like which Toni Morrison am I rereading? And how is that like going to be a part of my creative practice and part of my spiritual practice? Because it really is to that level for me. And so I am currently like um, in the middle again of Bluest Eye and a book that I, frankly, the first time I read it, I was too young. I don't know why my parents were letting me do read that book, like, as a child. <laughs> and it's just, it's bringing up so much. It's just, like, bringing up a lot for me in a way where, um, you know, both, like, on the level of craft and just talent, like, I am blown away. But also, you know, like, the thing that we, like, we kept saying about Octavia Butler is that, like, she was prescient. And I was like, well, sure, but she was also very present, and mm-hmm. I feel that about Toni Morrison as well, where I was like, oh, yeah, like people who are so deeply invested in just describing what they are seeing, like in their life and what they are seeing that is happening politically and what they're seeing that is happening socially are, you know, like 
they will always be people whose visions will last for a long time because they're just giving a really honest accounting of where they are at. And so I think that that is just, um, in reading Blue SI, I just am struck by so many things, like the level of detail and the just the way that Toni Morrison is just able to write about pain, um, mm. where you can feel it just like viscerally and also still, um, you know, like just see that you want to see the characters through, even though every single time your heart is broken. And um, yeah. I don't know. I just this is like a really rambling way of telling you that, um, you know, read Toni Morrison every single day of the week. <laughs> truly like truly a legend. She's the legend. Mm. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Anne? So I have been doing lots of letter writing with friends during this pandemic. Um, it is, turns out, like, you know, the super analog slow moving <laughs> option is <laughs> is my preferred one. Um, and I'm doing a little project with a friend who is also a writer where we are um, reading uh, a long interview on writing with Ursula K. Le Guin. And I should have looked up the... The man who does the interview with her—it's fine if I forget men's names, right? Oh. Like, yes. Do you have it right I there? Have the book next to me, I think. Please uh, help me. Much like the quote, I'm like, you know, I'm here in my closet without any books. Um, uh, David Naimon. Yes, I am simultaneously reading this book with a friend, and we are kind of pulling out little bits that speak to us and sending each other letters about it. And it's sort of nice to have like a topic to focus um, the letter writing because otherwise, I would just be like so sick of cooking, you know, whatever, just whatever <laughs> your normal daily, w really wish I could leave my house. So anyway, so that's something that, um, that I've been enjoying the reading of her letters and also, um, you know, being able to kind of have something that feels like a project that's feeding me a little bit. Um, I also want to recommend uh, season four of Insecure, which is like, I know not a book, but um, a thing that I have consumed in recent weeks that really feels um, in conversation with a lot of the dynamics that we write about in our book. And it was really just such a treat to kind of see these parallels played out on screen um, and, and to feel the kind of validation of like, oh, this thing that we were really trying to describe and thought was going to be, you know, maybe not relatable or easy to dismiss is in fact an experience that this other artist is trying to grapple with and put on screen as well. And so, um, so that is a non, a non book, but another recommendation. Nice. Um, another book that I want to recommend, but really just listen to the audiobook because like, like, yeah, just listen to the audiobook because it's faster. Um, is this book called exciting times by an author whose name I cannot, cannot pronounce. I'm very sorry. Um, my Irish pronunciation of first names is problematic, so I just won't do it. But it is this like very sardonic and funny and, uh, you know, like normal people, if normal people had tackled colonialism and abortion and the fact that like, you know, like gay rights not great in Ireland. And so it's just... That's been like my favorite audiobook of pandemic so far, where I just like found myself chuckling very quietly along at this like very um, like dark, witty um, author. And so that was really that was really fun. So, yeah, audiobook 1.5 speed. Godspeed. <laughs> I loved it, too. I, I, I also read it. It's one of one of my favorite reads this year. Um, and I also am going to recommend Emily Temple, um, her novel, The Lightness. Mm. It's about these um, this this 
a girl who runs away from home and you sort of why she runs away is a surprise um but she runs away to this buddhist retreat and uh, it turns out that some some of the girls that are, are trying to learn how to levitate um as they meditate and so she kind of gets caught up in in the friendship of these three other girls there and um it is fantastic it's really beautifully written and uh i highly highly recommend the lightness uh what about you drew to close us out i'm gonna break with tradition i'm not gonna recommend a book whoa uh i'm gonna recommend finding whatever theater or live performance experience you can find during quarantine Mm. whether that's like when erica badu was doing her distance concerts but today this afternoon i watched live in london matt smith and claire foy doing a play that they had done last year at the old vic they have been performing it for the last three weeks wednesdays through sundays they are not allowed to get within six feet of one another but it's them two camera operators the director and a stage manager and they're doing the play live and i just i like my heart swelled up at getting to experience live performance again and i love seeing the ways in which artists are now now that we're like deep in the shit of this experience knowing that it's not going to be over anytime soon that artists are starting to find cool ways to continue to make shit and i just if you know, whatever it is, please share it with us. Tell me about it. Um, the old Vic's run ended on or ends on July 4th. So you probably won't be able to see it by the time you're listening to this, but there are other theaters who are starting to do this. And it just, it makes me so happy. And I encourage you in your local communities and in the national community, the global community to like find this art. Cause it's how we're all going to survive, you know? So true. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much to both of you for coming. Yeah, thank on you. So many damn books. We so appreciate it. And um, everybody needs to go out and pick up Big Friendship. Um, it is a delight and a joy to read. I just and... ordered two copies for some of my friends. Nice. Aw, thank you. Yeah. And thanks uh, for having us. I know. Thanks for the cocktail recipe. This was fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody at home, you know, all the normal stuff. Uh, go to our website so many damn for all of our book lists everything we mentioned all the links to things and uh, go download call your girlfriend and leave both shows iTunes reviews because they need them no matter what we do love it awesome. thank you both so much thank you for thank having you. us have a wonderful rest of your day